This morning's scripture reading is from Luke 1, 26 through 33. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and, he, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we've been looking at these passages in Luke uh, 126 through one thir- we'll eventually go through 138. Uh, and we're just looking at this very simple few passages of scripture uh, over these three weeks as a springboard to talk about the Trinity and particularly to talk about Christmas, this Advent season, the celebration of the coming of the Lord as a Trinitarian act. And uh, I, we're going to be giving you a few resources uh, to this end. Uh, there's a few books that have really helped me and we'll have the rest of them next week. I, I still remember I was at Books A Million on Airport Road in Huntsville, Alabama. It's not there anymore. I think it's a Marshalls now. But anyway, I, uh, I was in college and I was home for Christmas break and I was reading. I went there. I mean, I wasn't that cool, right? I was going to Books A Million, reading at Books A Million one night, and I read the book for the first time uh, and I didn't read the whole book that night, but I, I started reading and it just started. You ever have those moments where you read, you can remember like where you were when you first read something and it just grabs you? Well, this was one of those moments for me, Airport Road, Books a Million. And I read the book Knowing God by J.I. Packer. I started reading that book. And, and, and Knowing God is a great book. And one of the things that, that started occurring to me is that I didn't really have a robust understanding of God's Trinitarian nature. Uh, J.I. Packer actually says in another place uh, that most of the evangelical church is confessionally Trinitarian but functionally Unitarian. And I think that's true. I, I think that we don't understand who we're dealing with here. We don't understand... God as three persons. We sort of commune with a God out there. But we don't understand his nature as Father, as Son, as Holy Spirit, as the first, second, third person of the Trinity. And this is so important. In fact, you can't really understand the Christian life unless this coin drops for you. There's so many things I could say here, but let me just say this. One of the things that the Bible says about God and that you probably all heard is that God is love. You've heard that. But have you ever thought about that? What does that mean? 
It's, it doesn't say God is loving, right? Love is one of the ways that God acts. It doesn't say that. It describes God as love. God is love. It's a part of his ontology. Ontology is the study of being. The, the part of God's being is love. How does that make sense? God is peace, or you would say it more truly. God is shalom, which means he is all right. He is whole. He is in perfect sync with one another. How is that? Like, what does that mean? It's not as, it's not as God feels peace. No, God is peace. God is love. And all of these things only make sense if you have a robust Trinitarian understanding of who God is. God, Father, Holy Spirit, three persons, God, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one God existing in love, perfect love between the Father and the Son, perfect love between the Son and the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit and the Father and the Holy Spirit and the Son and all the way around again. The, the nature of God's existence is love Be, because love is the action with which each person of the Trinity carries himself out toward the other. This is how God exists in triunity, in perfect unity. And thus, God is also peace. God is whole. Everything in God exists rightly together. The church fathers, I've talked about this before, but I love this idea. The church fathers talked about the periochorus, which is, is translated the great dance. God is the great dance. You ever see people dancing, two people dancing that really know how to dance? I'm not talking about me dancing. I'm talking about somebody that really knows how to dance. And there's two people, and yet there's one movement they're in sync with each other. There's division of person, but there's unity in movement. There's unity in, in what they're doing together. This is periochorus. You, you see the same thing in song. Uh, we were ta I had friend, uh, dinner with some friends the other night, and we were talking about uh, Handel's Messiah. Uh, you know, one of the things you should do this Christmas, okay, is listen to Handel's Messiah, but not just like the Hallelujah Chorus. Listen to the thing in its entirety. And when you get to the Hallelujah Chorus, it blows you away. It's amazing. But one of the things you, you hear in that, if it's being sung by a good choir, is all of these parts, all of these different vocal parts, but because they're in harmony with one another, they come to you with fullness, with a wholeness, with a periochorus, with one sound together. This is, these are just little glimpses of the nature of God. God is love. God is peace. He exists in this perfect triuneness. And so I, I want you to see that. I, I, want you to, I, I want you to have an understanding of God that's right and not just some sort of my little personal God thing that makes me feel better but to actually know the living God as he's revealed himself in scripture. And so we're, we're going to be talking about that. And I want to give you some resources. Uh, I, I had ordered some of the J.I. Packer book, but it didn't come in in time. But I did get this one in time, Delighting in the Trinity. Um, this is a great little book that I read this year, and I've got a few copies over there. I tell you what, we'll sell them for $5 each. But this one, I'll give away. Who, who's like, man, I want to know more about God. Okay. Susan, I see your hand. Will you pass that back? I usually throw it, but, you know, it depends on the person. <laughs> not that I don't trust your, not, not that I don't trust your skills. 
I don't trust your skills. You just look so nice today, Susan. I didn't want to throw something at you. Last week, if you were here, we looked at the Father and his role in this amazing Advent moment that he is the sending Father, that in love he sends his Son. But this week, I want to look at the Son. I want to think about the Son. And this passage tells us a lot about the Son, the second person of the Trinity. Two things I want to think about with you today. First, the nature of the Son. And then secondly, the mission of the Son. The nature of the Son. Um, if you were here last week, I also talked about Advent. There's a certain kind of buzz about it, right? I even, you know, the, the closer you get to Christmas, the more you feel it. Everyone's buzzing. Everyone wants in on this thing. We celebrate something really amazing at Christmas time. Uh, and, and what we really celebrate, I mean, if you just think about it, we celebrate that God came to Advent. Advent means to arrive or to come. God arrived. God came to be a part of us. And that's an amazing thing to believe. And, and we don't believe that God came in some sort of pantheistic, you know, force, God forces out there somewhere. You can tap into it. No, we actually believe, this is what Christians believe, that God came, he, he arrived among us, he arrived among creation as a being, as, as part of the creation, as a real human person. That is, that is really an amazing thing to believe. Just, just that idea that God entered into his creation as one of its beings, as one of the parts of it, as one of the, the, the created things among it. And again, he didn't come as some sort of superhuman. He came in a regular way. He came, he came the way we all come. We all got here in the same way. And that's exactly how Jesus came. He doesn't descend in. He comes through the womb of a woman. He came as a baby. Verse 31, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And this is the amazing thing about the Trinity, the, the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity, the second person of the three-person God came as an infant. Now, how does this even happen? And again, we're going to talk about this a little bit, but this is a big thing to believe. How is Jesus, how is the second person of the Trinity who's always existed? He didn't always exist as a baby, but he, the second person, has always existed. But he came as a baby. And what happens in the incarnation, I like the way that Charles Wesley says it, he was veiled in flesh. You know, the old song, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate, the made flesh, Deity. He was veiled in flesh. The Godhead, the second person of the Trinity, was veiled in flesh. And so, it's not as if his divinity is going away. We don't, we don't believe that Jesus is becoming less than divine in the incarnation. What we believe is that the divine nature of Christ is being covered in or veiled in a human nature. Someone uh, once uh, taught me about this, Bruce Ware, and he said, you know, it, it would be like this. It would be like taking a showroom car off the lot of a, brand, of a car dealership, brand new showroom car, and taking it out and 
running through the mud, you know, going mud bogging in this showroom car and you return it to the showroom, it's the same car. You've taken nothing away from the car, but you've veiled it, if you will. It, it is covered in the mud of the earth. You, you, you can't see the glory of the paint job. You can't see the, the glory of the car. It's there, it's in there, but it's, it's been humbled, if you will. It's been veiled by the mud. We need to understand that. His, he was so willing to take on a, a human nature that it veiled his divinity. Jesus is God incarnate. He's not half man, half God, right? I think I, for a long time, I understood Jesus like this, right? He was like a Hercules, you know? That's Hercules. That's a different story. Hercules is half man, half God, right? And he's like a Superman because of that. I remember as a kid thinking, man, I... I wish I could have known Jesus when, I was, when he was a kid. I wish Jesus would have been on my baseball team, right? He would have hit a home run every time, right? Because I had this like Hercules understanding of Jesus. That's not who Jesus is. That's not the incarnation. Jesus is not, Jesus is also not in his divine nature sitting there thinking, you know, how long do I have to act like a baby, you know, how long do I have to do this whole thing before this whole redemption show gets going on? No, the, the song Away in a Manger is more right than I was. It, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes. The baby really was woken up by the cattle because he was really a baby. He was really asleep. He, he was really needy. He really got tired he was veiled in the fullness of humanity. He actually had needs and hungers and desires. I, I think about this, you know, I'm a sucker for, anytime like I hear something about the Hubble telescope, I'm a sucker for the Hubble telescope, right? And every time I see something, the Hubble telescope discovers new galaxy, you know. I'm fascinated by the, and you know, you see these things, you've read them all, and it's like, you know, it looks at like one little piece of darkness and the Hubble telescope all of a sudden can see like 40 million new galaxies that we never knew about. And, and I see, I was like, man, what is this? That the God who created this vast universe, who spoke all these things into existence, was so willing to come in human form, and not just in human form, in baby form. The one who spoke the whole world into existence literally got hungry for his own mother's milk. That is a profound humility. Philippians 2, he was in the form of God, but he did not consider, I like the way the NIV says this verse, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be used for his own advantage but he emptied himself. He emptied, if you will, by adding, by covering, by veiling himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And again, before you get to the humility of the cross, let's just start with the incarnation. How much humility is that? That God became a baby. One of the most amazing passages in the whole Bible to me, you could just read right over it, but it's an amazing passage, Luke 2.52. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus needed to grow in wisdom and in stature. In stature, the whole, the, the incarnate son, Jesus was so veiled 
that his infinitude was veiled, his complete power was veiled, his infinite wisdom was veiled. So he had to grow in wisdom. He had to grow in stature. He really had to learn to walk. He really had to learn to speak. He really had to learn to read. Now, he never sinned. And what that means is this. The sinlessness of Jesus is not that Jesus never faced hardship or even faced temptation. In fact, the Bible tells us that our high priest, Jesus, was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. What this means is that the periochorus was never lost. Jesus' perfect love and posture toward the Father, toward the Holy Spirit, being powered and led along, as we're going to talk about next week, by the Holy Spirit. His communion with God was never lost, and so he never sinned. He always lived in line with God. Jesus was a perfect manifestation of God's creation. And again, not that he was some superhuman or had super abilities. Isaiah 53, 2 says, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was just a man, but he was in line with God's creation. He was living as we are all supposed to live. He was the true and better Adam. He was humanity, but he was humanity as humanity is supposed to be, always in line with the Father. But he was fully human, right? He really felt all the things that we feel, wonder, surprise, love, the second person of the Trinity, so veiled in humanity that even though he had a divine nature, in everything he experienced what we experienced. I love the story of the death of Lazarus. Here's Jesus, knowing, I believe, by the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing that he's about to raise Lazarus, knowing that this glorious thing's about to happen, that the wonder and the glory of God will be known, knowing what's about to happen. And yet when he sees his friend Mary and Martha, who he loves weeping, he weeps with them. He weeps for his lost friend. You know, another moment for me, I mentioned the Books a Million on Airport Road moment. Another moment for me was at Southern Seminary. I was taking a theology course, Norton 195, and Bruce Ware, who I mentioned earlier, was lecturing. And he was talking about this. What does this mean, that Jesus was so veiled? And he was talking about Jesus, you know, learning, growing in wisdom, growing in stature, learning how to read, discovering who he was. And, and, and in a sense, he was talking about Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, fully veiled in humanity, being led along by the Holy Spirit, being guided by the Word, reading Isaiah 9 one day, 6 through 8, 6 through 7. And realizing, okay, the, the child that is born, the son that is given, the, the government that should, should be upon his shoulders, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, that's me. He came into this understanding of who he was, what he was to do. He, in a sense, there was another day when he was reading Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. And he knew, that's me. The incarnation. It's an amazing thing to ponder that God, the second person of God, fully God, became fully man. 
So we've talked about the nature of God, but, but also in this, we learn about the mission of the Son, the nature of the Son, but we learn about the mission of the Son. You know, it's, it's actually, there's actually a lot kind of packed into the name Jesus. The, the word that we use for Jesus is the translation of the Hebrew, Yeshua. Yeshua. And Yeshua has meaning about it. Yah is a kind of like a shortened version of the personal name of the Lord. We see this in, if you ever read your Bible and, for example, if you're reading the Old Testament and you see the, the word Lord in all capital letters, that's to signify the personal name of the Lord is being used. In Hebrew, it's yod heh vav Some people translate it Yahweh, but we don't even know if that's a correct translation. But anyway, the personal name of the Lord. And so Yah is a, is a shortening of that. So Yah, and then the second part of the name of Christ, Jesus, Yahshua which is Hebrew for saves. How is, how, who is, what is the second person named? How has God revealed himself? Yahshua, God saves. What is the baby to be called? God saves, Yeshua. What is the name that is above every name? Yeshua, God saves. What is the only name under heaven where you must be saved? Yeshua, God saves. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name God saves, Yeshua. And he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, there's a lot to this announcement. Gabriel is telling Mary that the baby that she will conceive is basically the fulfillment that everything, that all, uh, uh, the fulfillment of all that her people have been hoping for. He will be the son of the most high. You know, it's interesting. If you, if you look at the genealogies of Jesus, they, they do this work, the same kind of thing that's happening here. Matthew 1, the point of Matthew 1, the... Gospel writer Matthew is telling us Jesus is the son of Abraham. He's the son of David. He's going through these genealogies to show who he is, what he's doing. He's the fulfillment of all these things, all these promises. Luke 3, that genealogy in Luke does even more. He's not only the son of David. He's not only the son of Abraham. He's the son of Adam. And Luke 3, the genealogy in Luke 3 ends, the son of God. The son of Adam, the son of God. Here the angel Gabriel is saying, this is who Jesus is. He's the, he is the true Adam. He's the true son of God. He's the true fulfillment of humanity. And he's the only one who can rescue humanity. You know, there's another great Christmas. There's a lot of theology packed into these songs we sing at Christmas. I love, I don't particularly love this song. It's not like if you said, what's your favorite Christmas carol? This is not top of my list. But I love this line. And it's a little town of Bethlehem. And, one, and the line that I love says, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. That's a great line. 
The hopes and fears, the hopes and fears of all humanity, all of our hopes, all of our fears, all of the, all of the, all of the emotion, the whole realm of emotion of humanity is met in Bethlehem tonight in the coming of this, the son of the most high, the true son of God, the true and better Adam. But he's not just the true man. He's not just the full man. He's not just the man rightly in line with God. He's the true king. Second thing we read here is that he is of the throne of his father, David. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. In 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13, God says to David, the great king of Israel, he says to David, David is reigning as king. And God says, I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, of course, after David came Solomon and Solomon was great for a time and Solomon built a temple and I'm sure everybody thought, oh, this is it. But then as we know, the kingdom divided. Ultimately, as we've been studying in Nehemiah, the kingdom was lost. There, there, there is now no king in Israel. And you could think, well, I guess this prophecy was lost. I guess this prophecy wasn't right, except for it wasn't fulfilled in Solomon. It was fulfilled in Jesus, the true descendant of David, the true king. And there's more. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom there will be no end. Jacob, the son, grandson of Abraham, the father of Israel. Remember, God changed his name to Israel. And so who is over the people of God, the people of Israel? Who is over the house of Jacob? Is it Jacob? Is it Abraham, the true father? No, it's Jesus. He will reign over the house of Jacob. And what the angel is saying to Mary here is that Jesus is the one they've awaited for. He is the anointed one, the Messiah, that word Messiah that we use. It means the anointed one, the one that God has chosen. He is the anointed one, the one to reign over the people of God. Israel's Messiah has come. And the secret of the Old Testament into the new is that the Messiah of Israel is really the Messiah of the whole world. That through the offspring of Abraham, the whole world would be blessed. Through this anointed one, blessing and peace and rest and joy and life comes to all who look to him. He's the true man. He's the true king. He is the true anointed one, Jesus, Yeshua, God saves. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. This is the announcement that God gave to Mary through Gabriel. Now, what does this mean? What is this to us? More than just a good lesson in theology. And here's what I hope you're hearing. All of life, the hopes and fears of all the years, all of life is, is, is found in Jesus. It is met in Jesus. It's not about you. <laughs> your purpose, your life, your dreams, when rightly understood, it's all wrapped up 
in him, the, the true man, the true king, the true anointed one who brings us into loving community and peace with God. If, if you realize this, there's, there's nothing that you can do to justify yourself. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. But the only way to be saved, the only way to experience God saves is to be oriented in him. To, to, to narrate your life around him, to find your mean, your base in Jesus. Now I say that, and you nod, because you know you're supposed to nod. You're, you're church-going people. It's Christmas. You know, yeah, Jesus, life, yeah, purpose, meaning, joy, whatever. But here's the thing. This is easy to nod at. It's very hard to believe, especially in this fundamentally secular and human-centered world that we live in. Meaning and joy and our dreams, these aren't found in some narrative, some ancient book. They're found in my achievement. They're found in what I do. They're found in what I can accomplish. I'm going to set a course for my life. I'm going to fulfill my dreams. That's, that's the story that we live in all the time. And this is humanism. You, you've heard me say that I, I think the great anthem of humanism is the 1980s song, We Are the World. We are, we are the world. We are the children. We're the ones that are going to make a brighter day. It's us. It's we. It's me. And, you know, here's the, the hard part is even our Christianity can take a very humanistic shape. Last week, you know, I warned you against kind of this hyper-Gabrielization of people wanting to hear from God. God, everybody wants this like special, extra special message from the Lord. I want God to speak to me. I want God to tell me this. When we have no delight in his word, no delight in the communion that he's called us into, no confidence that the Holy Spirit of God might lead us along in the word of God, in what God has revealed, we want God to have a special message to me. Rather than being a part of his story, we just want God to speak something into our story. This is where Christianity can take a very humanistic shape. I was talking this week about, with a friend about personality tests and how Christians love personality tests. And again, I, I, I'm not against personality tests. They have their place. We use one at Christ's covenant. We hire people. They're a good way to understand how somebody's kind of wired. But they're not ultimate. The, the most fundamental thing about you is not whatever number you are on Enneagram. The most fundamental thing about you is not like whatever your culture index is or whatever your strength finder is or whatever it is. That is not what's fundamentally true about your essence, your being, your existence. And, 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 and my problem with these things is that when they're overly held onto, grabbed hold on, they, became, they become an enormous pathway for self-centeredness and self-justification. This is me. This is my story. This is how I do things because I'm this. Now, don't you see that that's humanism? That's just, that's Christian-baked humanism. The most fundamental thing about you is that you're created by God to know God, to live for his purposes. It's 
It's all about me. It's all about my story. It's all about my life. This, this, is, the, this is the water we swim in. And so if somebody starts saying to you, everything is oriented around Jesus, he's the true man. He's the true king. It's easy to nod at that. But is that you? Is that, is that you? Is that, is that what you wake up breathing and longing for? Is that, is that really what your life is anchored in? Is he really your hope? Is he really your Messiah? Yeshua, God saves. You know, the other night, I, we were redoing this little patio, and um, we got these pavers for the patio, and uh, we came 50 square feet short. And so I said, well, let me go. I'm going to run out and grab some pavers real quick. And so I got on my phone, and so this might make some of y'all mad, but I like their pavers, and so I shopped at Home Depot, or I shopped at Lowe's, I'm sorry, not at Home Depot. So I went to Lowe's to get the pavers. And of course, you know, my little phone, you know, I did what you're supposed to do. It said pavers, kind of wanted garden center, row four, bin 13, Edgewood. They said they had 54 in stock. I only needed 30. So I go over there to Edgewood, go to the garden center, row four, bin 13, Pavers aren't there. So I go get the guy, you know? And I said, hey, you know, I'm looking for these pavers. And so he pulls out his thing. It's basically a phone like mine. He goes, oh, well, row four, bin 13. So we go over there. We do the exact same thing. And there's no pavers. And so then uh, he says, well, you need to go to the customer service. So I go to customer service and I wait in line. You have to wait in line at customer service. I said, hey, I'm looking for these pavers. And they said, oh, yeah, well, come on. So I walk over there. They pull out their little phone. And, um, you know, row four, bin 13. And we look around, no pavers, you know. And they said, well, you're going to have to go. You're going to have to go up to Shambly. They got them at Shambly. We get them at Shambly. So, okay. So, it's, you know, it's like, it's like afternoons, like 4.35 you know, this is not, it's not great to be driving around right now. Go up to Shambly, get there. Same kind of, same, same routine. They said, well, you got to go to Norcross. We, but we, but we have them at Norcross. If you just go to Norcross, we got them at Norcross. I said, okay. So I go up to Norcross. Get to Norcross. They had, you know, they had the little cart. They had all the pavers on the cart when I got there. I was like, wow, this is, this is customer service. Except for, except for it wasn't the right pavers. It was a different kind of pavers. He says, oh, we're sorry. We can't really find him here, but if you go to Alpharetta. <laughs> so I go to Alpharetta. Long story short, about 9 o'clock at night, I'm at the Johns Creek Lowe's. <laughs> and, you know, it's 9 o'clock, and I, you know, I'm literally, and I found a nice customer service associate, and I'm, you know, we're in literally the back parking lot of Lowe's and Johns Creek, looking around at, like, all the pallets, trying to find our thing. We never find them. So he said, well, let's just order them online. You'll have to get them delivered. So I order them online. They're going to come Friday. Truck comes Friday. So excited. Of course, they delivered the wrong set of pavers again. I still don't have the pavers. I don't know where they are. I tell you this story to say this. This is life. That's the kind of thing... That's the kind of thing that people spend their lives doing. 
As David Foster Wallace wrote one time, a large part of the human life is boredom, routine, and petty frustrations. And we spend our whole lives building our little kingdoms, solving our little problems. So excited when we actually find the papers. Man, I, when, we, when these papers actually come, it's going to be awesome. But for what? Building little kingdoms that are all about us, that what we accomplish, the story that we can tell. And I want you to hear this. This will be your whole life unless an announcement like this comes to you. An announcement that says there's, there's more to your little story. There's more to your little kingdom. That you are actually created by the eternal being to be a part of his story to bring his glory, to bring him glory, not just to live for yourself and your happiness, but to live for God, to live for him, to know him, to be wrapped up in his eternal and good kingdom. And the amazing thing about Jesus, the amazing thing about Christmas, the amazing thing about this whole thing is that Jesus, who is that God? The second person of the Trinity was willing to enter into this fallen world with all of its pain and all of its heartache, with all of its boredom routine and petty frustrations. And he, the second person of the Trinity, was willing to come and identify with you and with me so that he could lift us out of it, so that he could call us to himself, so we can know him and through him know God. And this happens. This happens when you realize that it's not your story, it's not your kingdom that's really ma that really matters, it's his. Now that doesn't mean that life won't be filled with petty frustrations. That doesn't mean that we don't have a personality. That doesn't mean that we don't have the great happinesses and joys of life. It just means that all of that is not ultimate. All of that is not our base. All of that is not our identity. What is ultimate about me is not that I have a nice patio. What is ultimate about me is not that I am a pastor or a friend or know this person or that person or have done this or have done that or have accomplished this. What's ultimate about me is that I know God. And there's only one way I can know God. That he would save me. Yeshua. God saves. God has come to identify with me. To identify with me in every way to even take on my sin, to become my substitute. That's the power of Jesus. When Jesus comes to you and you see that God is identified with you, then God begins to save. He saves you from yourself. He saves you from your sin. He calls you to the purposes and desires and joys that you were really made for. God saves and he saves by humbling himself to become like us and even humbling himself to die in our place. This is the mission of Jesus. God saves. Has he saved you? Have your eyes been open to this? Have you been able to see that all of life is not about you and your story and your things? Has your heart turned? Have you oriented your life to him? Has the announcement come to you? that the true man, the true king, the true Messiah has come. And his name is Jesus. 
Yeshua, God saves. Let's pray. Father, I pray that at Christmas time we would see this Messiah, this Savior who's come to rescue us, who's come to identify with us in every way so that, so that we could identify with him and ultimately so that we could identify with you. Father, free us from ourselves. Free us from our, our petty pursuits. Free us from these skull-sized kingdoms that we love to build. And help us to find our place, our life, our identity and who you say that we are in knowing you. And Lord, may we know you more as we look to Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.